Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We are going to look at Revelation 21 tonight, but before we do that, I want to do a little bit of review just to kind of get the culmination of where we've been uh, the past few weeks. So back in chapter 18, we saw the fall of Babylon. Babylon, the harlot, Babylon, the prostitute, the great city. Um, It was this personification of a worldly system that is trying to seduce the entire world to embrace sexual immorality and materialism and idolatry and pride. It's destroyed. Okay, chapter 19, what happens? Jesus comes back. He's the rider on the white horse. He destroys all of God's enemies and he throws the false prophet and the beast into the lake of fire. So Babylon's been destroyed. False prophet's been destroyed. Beast has been destroyed. Okay, at the end of chapter 20, Satan is bound. Actually, he's released at the end of chapter 20. And he ends up being thrown into the lake of fire. So, last week, I gave you guys an amillennial understanding of the book of Revelation, which is the highly symbolic understanding of it. But we did not get to chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 in detail. So that's where I want to start tonight. And and so, Revelation chapter 20... 11 through 15. So let's just review the order, in my personal opinion, and again, you can disagree with me, of the order of events based upon the symbolic understanding of the thousand years. We are now living in the symbolic, it's not a literal thousand years, it's a symbolic thousand year reign where the souls of believers are with Christ in heaven. They have not received their resurrected bodies yet because the second coming hasn't happened. We on earth are living in a time of persecution, a time of tribulation where the enemy is very real. And so that's what we're living in right now. Now, near the end of this undefined symbolic time, we don't know, but near the end, Satan will be unleashed. And what will he do when he's unleashed? We looked at this last week. He will deceive the nations through how? False signs and wonders, particularly through the man of sin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-11 through 11 tells you about the man of sin or the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, a literal man who will be on the world scene that Satan will use to deceive the, the world. Okay? During that time, there will be a major time of tribulation, a major time of persecution. Then the end will come. The day of the Lord. How many days of the Lord are there? It always talks about one day, on that day, on that day. Okay, Christ will come back, visibly, literally, physically, to planet Earth. And at the same time that Christ comes back, there will be a resurrection of the dead. Okay, who goes first? The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are still alive will be caught up in the air. We will all get new bodies. So the second coming, the rapture slash resurrection, 
I believe is a simultaneous back-to-back event. That is the end. And then as we saw last week, what happens? The Lord will destroy all of His enemies and the world through what? Fire. Okay. And one of the key passages, and we looked at this last week, but let's just look at it again. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. And again, I want you to notice the, the language. Every time in the Bible it talks about the second coming or the day of judgment or the day of resurrection, whatever you want to call it, it talks about the day. Okay, So 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So what happens on the day of the Lord? Jesus comes back. Enemies are destroyed. There's a resurrection. Okay. So the second coming slash rapture slash resurrection is the day of the Lord. After the resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous, there will be final judgment. Okay. This is where the amillennial view differs from the dispensational view. The dispensational view sees four judgments. Amillennial view says there's one day of judgment. There's one day of the Lord. There's one second coming. There's one resurrection. There's one judgment. It all happens on that final day. And so when you look at passages that talk about final judgment, they often speak about that day, on that day of judgment, on that day of the Lord. Okay? Not multiple days or multiple judgments. So it leads me to understand that there's only one final judgment. Now, there may be different ways in which God judges on that day, and we'll talk about that, but I think there's one final judgment. So Matthew eleven twenty two, Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. He just mentions what? A day of judgment doesn't say at the first judgment, at the second judgment, at the third judgment, at the fourth judgment, at many judgments. It's on the day of judgment. Okay? Matthew chapter 25, verse 32. Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That is the day of judgment. What does Paul say about the day of judgment? Romans 2, 5-6. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. So is it how many days of wrath is there? There's the day of wrath, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Okay, Romans 14, 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brothers or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Who's going to stand before the judgment seat of God? 
And Paul includes himself, right? So are Christians going to be there? Yes. Now we'll talk about what it looks like for Christians versus what it looks like for non-Christians, but we all have to appear before the judgment. And there it says, have to appear before what? To stand before the judgment seat of God. Okay. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Almost the same wording there. We all must appear before the judgment seat. And then at the coming of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9-10, through 10, when Jesus comes back, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. Okay? The Bible very clearly teaches a day of judgment. We will all stand before the Lord at the day of judgment, at the judgment seat. Okay. So, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, illustrates that for us prophetically, apocalyptically. So let's read Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is this judgment? Or great white throne judgment, the day of judgment. Do just non-Christians get judged here? Or what does the Bible say? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what does it say here are opened? Books. And people are judged by what they had done. But then there's the book of life. And if your name was not written in the book of life you were thrown into the lake of fire. So non-Christians, I'm going to be very clear on this, non-Christians, lost people, those who do not believe in Jesus, they will be judged by two issues. Okay? They will be judged by their works. Okay, now why are non-Christians raised at the resurrection? Why aren't their souls just sent to hell? They are raised with a body to face judgment because the judgment is by works done in the body. And they will be punished in hell with the body because they committed sin in the body. Okay? So they're judged by works done in the body and ultimately they are judged for their refusal to worship Jesus. They did not trust Jesus. They did not believe in Jesus. Okay? 
So if a non-Christian does a bunch of good works, is that enough to get him into heaven? Are you saved by works or by grace? So let's say a non-Christian standing before the judgment seat says, look, I did all these good deeds. Hopefully my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. God, you need to let me in. What does Isaiah say? Even the righteous works we do are like a filthy rag. So number one, even if you did enough good works, those bad works you did are enough to damn you. And in addition to that, you did not trust Christ personally for salvation. Okay? Now, that's non-Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Christian and non-Christian. How will Christians be judged? I don't think we will be judged in the sense that God's going to judge us the way He judges non-Christians because Christ has taken that judgment on the cross. And where were our names written? If you're a believer, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So what's the basis for your judgment or non-judgment? Okay, so if Christ paid for your sins on the cross and took that punishment, will you have to suffer judgment again for the sins He already paid for? No. Okay? If your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, that means God has saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now, here's the question. Should we as Christians fear the day of judgment? You do or don't? Why would you fear the day of judgment as a Christian? Okay, but you're going to be glorified. I mean, for your loved ones, but for you personally. So as a Christian, we should not fear ourselves. We should not fear ourselves the day of judgment. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Or some of you saying we should fear it. Let me give you two verses here and maybe change your mind. Okay. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does condemnation mean? There's no judgment for those who are in Christ. It's not going to be like you're before the great white throne and God's going to open these books and be like, I'm not sure. There's some good things on here, but what's, what's God going to open? He's going to open the book of life. Did you do anything to get in the book of life? When was your name? When was your, actually, when was your name put in there? Before the foundation of the world. Your name was written in there before you were even born. So it's all of grace that God did that. It's not based on works. And 1 John 4, 17 says this, By this is love perfected with us, so, listen to what John says, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is so also are we in this world. We may have confidence in the day of judgment because love has been perfected in us. We've been saved by grace. God's love takes away our sins. Okay? So, don't ask me what the judgment's going to look like for Christians. 
I don't know exactly how it's going to work. I don't know if we're all going to be lined up in a row waiting there for 2,000 years. I mean, I don't know how the mechanics of it work, okay? It's, there's not enough information in the Bible to say exactly how it works. Here's what we do know. We will fear before the judgment seat. We will be judged by what we did, okay? And then everything you did as a Christian was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And your judgment was taken on the cross. And your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So here's the bottom line for me, regardless of how it shakes down. As a Christian, you should not fear the day of judgment because you are saved by grace. As a non-Christian, you should fear the day of judgment. Okay? Now, what happens here with this great white throne and books being opened? Yes, Risa. Only the, no, only the elect. Um, only those who've been predestined before the foundation of the world's names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not everybody. Because okay. if everybody's name was in the Lamb's book, book of Life, everybody would be saved. Well, that's what I was going to say. So then what, they just get their name taken off? I didn't... No, their name was never in it. Okay. Yeah, so like, yeah, like God writes everybody's name in with a pencil. <laughs> And uh, if you if you do something bad, he erases your name because like you, you know maybe maybe our Nazarene brothers and sisters may believe that I don't know. Like if you lose your salvation, I'm not exactly sure how that works. But um. now this picture right here is very similar to the throne room that Daniel saw. So Daniel, it's very interesting in the Old Testament. Daniel saw a lot of the same things that John saw which shows the continuity between the two Testaments. What does Daniel see in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10? This is funny because Daniel has a dream and he wakes up and his face turns white and he was shocked by what he saw. Um, But here's what Daniel saw way back in the day. He's talking about his vision. As I looked, thrones, does that sound familiar? Were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, who is the Ancient of Days? It's God the Father. His clothing was white as snow, The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. That takes you back to the throne room in Revelation chapter 4. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousand, thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and books were opened. So what does Daniel see? The great white throne judgment. Yes, Paul. Well, because if you read further, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man all authority. So you have two persons of the Trinity there. The Ancient of the Days, God the Father, and and one like a Son of Man, Jesus, getting all power and authority. So the Ancient of Days, in the context, it has to be God the Father because the Son of Man shows up there. Yeah, or in that same passage of Scripture. Okay, so... What's the very last thing at the end of verse, of the, the last verse of chapter 20? Is there any enemy of God, any non-believer left? Okay. If your name was not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, what happened to you? You said shipped out? <laughs> shipped out. <laughs> well, I think it's a little bit stronger than that. <laughs> Makes it sound like you can come back to port. But... <laughs> At the end of chapter 20, who and what's been destroyed in the book of Revelation so far? Babylon the harlot's been destroyed. Back to chapter 18. The beast has been thrown into the lake of fire. 
chapter 19. The false prophet has been thrown into the lake of fire, chapter 19. Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire, chapter 20. Death and Hades have been thrown into the lake of fire. The earth has become disfigured through the fire of judgment. Okay? Based upon 2 Peter and other passages of Scripture that says the world would be destroyed by fire. So you get to the end of chapter 20. Who is left? What, what The last two chapters of Revelation, lost people, Satan, everybody's out of the picture. The last two chapters of Revelation focus on heaven, the new heavens and the new earth and what believers will experience for eternity. So tonight gets exciting because we're no longer talking about judgment and millstones and wrath and destruction. We're talking about heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. So we get to chapter 21. Chris, can I stop you briefly? Yes, yes, sir. Puzzled by the words that you were talking about at the end of chapter 20. But if I change that word to by the end of chapter 20. By the end, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Basically, what I'm saying is, in a, basically what I'm saying, and, and again, this may not be sequential, this is how John sees it, but the last two chapters of Revelation, all the enemies of God have been destroyed, the devil's been thrown into hell, lost people are in hell, now he focuses on what the believer's experience is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's read chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. And um, final judgment's done. So uh, what's, what's happened so far? Jesus has come back. There's been a resurrection. There's been the judgment. What's left? The new heavens, the new earth, and hell. What we call the eternal states. Where we're going to spend eternity, whether you're lost or you're saved. Everybody's going to have eternal life. <laughs> okay? Everybody's going to have eternal life. It's just where you're going to spend it and how you're going to experience it. Okay. Now, when we think of eternal life, we automatically think as believers, yeah, we're going to have eternal life in heaven with Jesus. Lost people will live eternally, but it will be in, in hell. Okay. So not a pleasant thought to think about, but a reality the Bible teaches. So Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Let's go ahead and read this together. Then I saw a new heaven... And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is finished. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, 
This is the new heavens and the new earth. All throughout the Bible, it speaks about this, going all the way back to Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 65, verse 17, prophesied way back in the Old Testament, For behold, this is God saying, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Sound familiar to what we see right here? New heavens, new earth. Okay. Now, let me just write some words up here. Because that's a question. The, the word new, there's two ways to, to use the word new in the Greek language. But let's, um, let's keep looking at some of these other passages of Scripture. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I, truly, truly I say to you, in the new what? world... When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve tribes, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, think about this for a moment. Just stop and think what we talked about the past few weeks. What's the dispensationalist or the premillennial view of when Jesus sits on His throne? In the millennium. But what's He say right here? In the new world. Is that a literal thousand-year reign on earth, or is it the new heavens and the new earth? I take it to be the new heavens and the new earth, okay? Now, the word new world, you know what word that is in the Greek language? Regeneration. That's, that's what the Greek word is there for new world. You may have even a footnote in your Bible that says that. In the regeneration. What's regeneration? Okay, so re, re means again. What does generate? Or genesis. To reborn, to remake, to recreate. In the recreation, if you will, the new creation. In Acts 3.21. whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Talking about Isaiah. What's the restoring of all things? we got another word there. So you have a restoration. You have a regeneration. You have a renovation. Okay, so... Here's the big question that a lot of people debate over, and that is, okay, what does this word new mean, new heaven and new earth? Is this a totally brand new creation, like planet earth has been totally decimated and God recreates earth again like He did the first time, ex nihilo, out of nothing, or is this a renovation or regeneration of what we're already experiencing? In other words, is the new heaven and the new earth, our existing earth just renovated because it's been decimated, or has the entire earth been destroyed and God creates a new earth for us to live on? It sounds like it's a new earth. Okay. It talks like everything's been destroyed and then heavens are burning up. I mean, this sounds pretty cataclysmic. Okay. Let me just tell you what the word new is in Greek, okay? It's the word kainos. There's chronos. I mean, not chronos. That's the word for time. Kainos. New means a newness in quality, not in kind. In other words, 
Here's the argument. If I go get my car totaled and smashed up and disfigured and burned and obliterated, is it still my car? What happens if I take it and get it restored? It's the same car, but it's restored brand new. Most scholars would believe that the earth that we're going to experience is a regenerated, renovated, it's the same planet earth, but it's been, the the way that we have been regenerated in our salvation. We were spiritually dead. God made us alive. Okay, in the, let me just ask you this question. In your resurrection, when you have a new body, is it going to be totally different than the body you have now? (laughs) But will it be similar? Like, for example, when Jesus, resurrected from, when Jesus resurrected from the dead, was His body so different that people didn't know who He was? It was almost, it was very similar, okay? So even in the resurrection of our bodies, it's very similar to what we experience now. Now, this is a debatable point. I don't care which view you hold, as long as you believe that God does something new. Whether it's a total recreation, He can do it. Whether it's a renovation, both of them are miracles. Both of them are new. So I'm not really that hung up as far as which way you do. It's, it's new. Okay? But what I find interesting is what's the very first thing that John sees in this new heaven and new earth? Is it streets of gold? What does he see? How do you know it's the church? Just because you're reading it on my sheet? <laughs> How do you know it's the church? Does it say there, I, I turned around and saw the church. What does he see? Verse 2, I saw the holy city. Well, that doesn't sound like the church. That sounds like what? It sounds like, what's the holy city in the Bible? It sounds like I'm seeing Jerusalem in the new heaven and the earth. Because what does it say there? New Jerusalem, but where's it coming from? It's coming down out of heaven, but what is it prepared as? A bride adorned for her. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Symbolic, symbolic, symbolic. Is this a literal city coming down in a white dress? <laughs> okay, I'm just asking. If you take all the metaphors there together, if she's prepared as a bride, is it, a, is it literally Jerusalem coming down out of heaven with a veil and a bridal gown? Or is this symbolic language? Who was the holy people of God in the Old Testament? Okay. Who's the bride of Christ in the new? The church. Okay, so what I think this is, is this is a picture of the body of Christ totally in heaven. It's the first thing that John sees. So what is more important in heaven? Streets of gold, your little mansion over there, or the body of Christ living together eternally as the church? Now, why do we know that it's the church? Where else in the Bible does it talk about a bride being ready for her husband? What does Paul say in Ephesians 5, 25 and 27? He's talking to husbands and wives, but he makes a very interesting statement about Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
What has Jesus done to the church? His people. He's washed us and gotten us ready for the wedding day. And what does John see here? John sees the church coming down the aisle, metaphorically, prepared to have the union with Christ as the husband. It's a beautiful picture of intimacy with Christ as the body. And so what is the Lamb's most prized possession? It's His bride, the church. It's mentioned first. That should tell us how Christ views His church. I get very leery when I hear people say, Christians, professing Christians, I'm not really into organized religion. My church is my family going to the reservoir on Sundays. My church is in my living room watching, tele, watching the televangelist on the internet. My church is going to the mountains. Can you truly be part of the church if you're not part of the... It's the body of Christ. Okay? Now, what is God going to do with the church? Look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place. What is your Bible? Does your Bible have a footnote about what the word dwelling place is? The tabernacle. The tabernacle, the tent, the dwelling place of God is where now? With man, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God will dwell with us. God will live with us. This is a thread that's woven all throughout the Scriptures going all the way back to um, the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 17, 7, God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you that throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be your God. You will be my people. How did God dwell with people in the Old Testament? Okay, like where? In the tabernacle. Later on in the temple. Okay, so let's just stop here real quick. I want you to understand that language because it's woven all throughout the Bible. First, all right, so let's just even take it further back. Before the tabernacle, where did God dwell with His people? I'm talking. I'm not talking about Exodus. Y'all are too, too fixed on Sunday mornings. Um, where did God dwell with His people? In the Garden of Eden. And what happened when sin came in? They were left. Okay. They had to leave the garden. They were banished. Okay. Next big issue, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob. Um, God was their God, but it was more of a covenant. Okay. God, not so much dwelt with Israel, but he led them through what? The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. It's not until you get to the tabernacle that God says, I will dwell with my people. Now, was the tabernacle, what was the tabernacle? It was a portable tent. It was a portable tent they had to carry around. Inside the, inside the tabernacle, what was in the very middle of it? That was a perfect cube. 
the Holy of Holies. And that's where God dwelt with the Ark of the Covenant. And you had the Shekinah glory of God and the glory cloud represented God's presence. Could your average Israelite walk in there? Could the priest even walk in there unless he had washed himself? He could only go in there once a day. I mean, once a day, once a year. Okay. Eventually, when David captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites, he was not able to build the temple. His son Solomon, what did they build? They built the... which was a permanent place where God dwelt. Okay. So you had Garden of Eden, Tabernacle, Temple. Get to the New Testament. Who is the tabernacle? Who is the temple that comes on the scene in the New Testament? Jesus is the dwelling of God. Okay? Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He goes back up to heaven. Who does Jesus send to dwell in us? Holy Spirit. Spirit. Who now is the temple of God? Right now. We are. Okay. What happens when we get to heaven? Will there be any more earthly temple? Will we need the Holy Spirit to live in us anymore? We will be with Jesus, how? Like unfettered access to God Himself. He will dwell with us in the fullest way possible, and we will dwell with Him. Exodus 6, 7, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So, question. Let me ask you a question. Anybody here experience walking with God in the cool of day in the Garden of Eden? Anybody here got to go into the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies? Anybody here got to go into the temple? Anybody here got to see Jesus walk physically on earth? Guess what happens when we get to heaven? All those realities we'll get to experience. It'll be like Adam and Eve will get to walk with God. We'll, have, we'll get to go into the Holy of Holies because there'll be no more need to... I mean, we'll have perfect access to God. We'll see Jesus face to face. All of the, the limitations we had on earth will be ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with God. So you would say, what is heaven? Heaven is being able to live with God perfectly, forever. Now, what's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth according to to verse 4? An absence of the effects of sin. What has sin caused in your life? Let me just ask you, verse 4. Has anybody ever cried tears? Anybody experienced the death of a loved one? Anybody mourned? Anybody cried? Anybody felt pain? Those things will be no more. The former things have passed away. What are the former things? The things of the earth right now. The earth that's under the curse. Probably the most important statement in the book of Revelation up to this point. Read very carefully verse 5. He 
who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the first time God speaks Himself in the entire book of Revelation. Who's been speaking on behalf of God? Verse 5. All throughout the book of Revelation, angels have been speaking. John has been speaking. Elders have been speaking. 24 elders have been singing. Four living creatures have been directing. Finally, God Himself says, it doesn't say, Behold, God is making things new. What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? I am making, and what's He doing? He's making all things new. Reminds you of 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice also what he says there in verse 6. It is done. What's the only other place you hear that phrase? It is done. You guys are hiding over there. It is what? On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Okay. Redemption was completed. What's, what's done here? It's the end of the world. It's the new world. Okay. It is done. What's done? The destruction of all the enemies, the final judgment. I've completed the course of history that I've ordained, and I'm making all things new because I'm God and I have the sovereign right to do that. And guess what you get to experience in verse 6? Perpetual refreshment for the soul. Notice what it says there in verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, this is all metaphorical. Are you going to be thirsty in heaven? i got a glorified body and I'm going to be walking around. I need that Sprite to drink or a Gatorade. I'm thirsty. No, it's a metaphor. What's the point here? You won't ever have to worry about... Well, let me just ask you this. Is there in your life right now as a sinner somewhat of a holy angst or a holy dissatisfaction with where you are spiritually? Do you ever feel like you have enough of God? Do you ever feel like you pray enough, you seek God enough? Do you ever feel like you, you feel spiritual enough? No, we're never going to feel that way. How are we going to experience in heaven? Will we ever have anxiety about not having spiritual refreshment? No. David said it this way in Psalm 42, As deer pants for the flowing streams of water, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for the living God. Right now, what do we, we long to get close to God. When we sin, we feel far away from God. There's always, because of sin, because of human limitations, because we can't see God, there's always a little bit of that separation. When we get to heaven, we're never going to feel that because we're always going to be satisfied. What was one of the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. Will you ever have any spiritual lack in heaven? You're walking around like, man, I don't, I don't feel close to God today. It's a bad day. I didn't have my quiet time today. You're not going to feel that, are you? Because what's going to happen? You're going to be in the presence of, of Jesus, and you're going to be perfected. Okay. 
also, look at verse 7. You're going to be adopted. You're going to, you're going to experience the fullness of your adoption. Now, we've been adopted into God's family, but we don't fully experience that adoption until we get to heaven. But verse 7, to the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, I don't know if you guys remember um, when I was preaching through Galatians last spring, and it talked about being a son, being an heir. And I said to you ladies, don't worry about being called a son. Because you'd think you'd say sons and daughters. In that culture, women had no rights. Women had no authority to, um, to, to buy and sell. And so the son had the, uh, the proper, the son was the one that would be, receive the heir. So when it talks about sons, it's actually elevating the dignity of women by giving you a status that women in that culture didn't have being adopted as an heir of God. Galatians 3.29, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs to or heirs according to the promise. So you ha- you're adopted. So, so think about this. What do you get to experience as the body of Christ in heaven? You get to dwell with God, no effects of sin, perpetual, ultimate spiritual satisfaction, and the fullness of being adopted into God's family. Now, there's a little warning there in verse 8. Who does not receive eternal life? Who is not part of the new heavens and the new earth? The cowardly. That's interesting. That's like the first time that word showed up in a list of sins. The cowardly. What does that mean? What's going on in the book of Revelation? Who's the original audience? The seven churches. The original audience of the seven churches. Who was emperor during this time? Probably Domitian. What did he, what did Domitian call himself? He called himself Lord and God. What did you have to do once a year? Go to the temple, drop a pinch of incense on the altar and profess public allegiance to Caesar as your Lord and God. So a lot of Christians were doing that out of fear for not standing up for Christ. So cowardly are those ones that were not, they didn't lose their salvation, but they proved that they were never saved in the first place because they liked their comfort over allegiance to Christ. Okay, so let's just talk about this for a moment. When this, all right, let me just, I I, I lead a Tuesday, every other Tuesday night I have 20-somethings in my home. Last night we had 15 packed in there and we had a great time. We're going through the book of Daniel. And so it's, it, there's some parallels between Daniel and Revelation. But I asked them the question last night, and I'll ask you the same question. Do you think things are going to get better or things are going to get worse? Okay, worse. How are they going to get worse? What's going to happen? Persecution. Okay. Is it going to be harder or easier to be a true Christian? Why is it going to be harder to be a true Christian? And I use that word true. What does a true Christian say? A true Christian has a message that says, every single person is born a sinner separated from God and they deserve hell. God is not obligated to save anybody. Jesus is the only way of salvation. He died on a bloody cross so that you could be saved. He rose again. He's coming back. And by the way, the Bible's true on what it says on everything. And there are some things that are big time sins. And one of those is sexual ethics. Say what, Willis? What you talking about, Willis? 
that puts you in the crosshairs of our culture where they're like, so here's what's going to happen. You're going to have true Christians that are going to stand fast regardless of what the consequences are. You're going to have true Christians who are not going to say anything for fear. And you're going to have those that think they're Christians that are going to compromise because it's just easier. And so the reason the cowardly is on the list first is because John's saying, hey, wake up, call my original audience, seven churches. There's some of you, some of your leaders have already been put to death by persecution. Don't be cowardly. Stand strong in the face of persecution. Endure to the end. Be an overcomer. Okay? Now, That's huge. Why is that huge, Paul? Well, because we are seeing persecution now, and it's going to go on. So what are we going to do? Are we mm-hmm. going to stand firm? Are we going to be cowardly and back off yeah. and say, well, whatever those people want to do, that's up to them, yeah. instead of taking a stand and being yeah. a foundation and being yeah. something stable, yeah. you know, I feel for the college kids right yeah. now. Yeah, oh yeah. And that's kind of the group I'm, that we're dealing with. I hesitate to say this out loud, but I will because I've said it before. Um, my family is prepared for one day me to be in prison. That's just a reality that my wife knows because of being a pastor. If this is what God has called me to and I have to preach the truth, I can't back down regardless of what. And so I've said this, if I have a church of 10 or a church of 100, my message is not going to change. Because I have to stand before God on the day of judgment to give an account for how I shepherded and how I preached. And I'd much rather please God than to worry about pleasing men. So there's going to be a lot of churches that are going to dwindle down to a small number. I still think there are going to be big churches in America. Churches. There'll be a gathering of people together, but I wonder if they're really going to be the true church. Well, we may have it on paper what we believe, but what they preach and what they say is not the gospel. So anyway, I'm done with my little sermon there. Yeah, Jerry. How about those preachers that don't uh, <laughs> preach all of the Bible? How about those preachers that don't preach all the Bible? You asked that to me a lot, Jerry. It must bother you. Um, it does. I know it does bother you. Well... What do you think about that, Jerry? What do you think the Bible says about that? I think the Bible says that uh, we're supposed to know all of the Bible, yeah. not just part of the Bible. Yeah. And part of the Bible is the Old Testament and, yeah. and, the, and yeah. the Revelation yeah. and such. And yeah. So they're not teaching yeah. what they're supposed to be Yeah, they're not teaching what they're supposed to be teaching. The Bible, okay, there's two categories, okay, of people. There are baby Christians that don't know all their theology and can be a little mixed up on some things. And then there are those that are teachers and preachers that know but teach false teachings. Those men and women will be held very accountable, Jerry. And the Bible has a lot to say about false teaching and what happens to false teachers. If they don't repent or recant or correct, Jude and 2 Peter talk about there being a place of blackest darkness for false teachers. I don't know what that means, if that means there's a hotter part in hell for false teachers, but it's a very, it's a very serious thing. Yeah. 
All right, let's let's keep moving, guys. So when we get down to, to, to verse 9, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, we're, we're given an actual description of the city. Now, why would it be called a city? Is this a metaphorical city that you can measure, or is it a symbolic city? What was the other city we've seen in the book of Revelation? Babylon. Babylon the harlot. Okay. So the question, if we've been taking Revelation symbolically this whole time, why are we going to change when we get to the very end? I'm just telling you my interpretation is, is this a literal city with actual dimensions or is everything to be taken symbolically? If I'm going to be consistent with the symbolic interpretation, I'm going to be consistent all the way through the book of Revelation and just take it that way. I don't care which way you, you interpret it as long as you're consistent. You either, either be literal all the way through or symbolic all the way through, but you can't pick and choose where you want to be literal and where you want to be symbolic. So just pick one and stick with it. I think, for me personally, Revelation makes a whole lot more sense if you take it symbolically. Okay? Now, let's just look at the architecture. Let's look at verse um, 9 through 21. How much time do we have? Oh, good, we've got good time. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, I thought we just saw the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Is this sequential or is this linear? No, it's, it's apocalyptic. We've already seen it, but this is a dramatic way of showing. So what, what are we going to see? The bride, the wife of the Lamb, metaphorically given in a symbolic city. Okay? So when the angel tells you what you're going to see, now, now you don't take that. Do you, do you have to read between the lines to see what you're going to be seeing? I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We know from the rest of the Bible that is the, the church. Okay. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, well, is it the bride or is it the city? Yes, metaphorically speaking. Okay. So the holy city Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were on it inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured the wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. That's confusing, isn't it? <laughs> the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jaseth, the twelfth amethyst. I can never say amethysts. The twelfth gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. Okay. Okay, that's the question, Paul. That sounds awful specific. It's a measuring rod, and it's got dimensions and everything. And so then you started... Surely this one is real. Yeah, surely this one's real because... because if, all right, so let me ask you a question. If you take the literal dimensions of this... It's got to fit 
people literally from all tribes, tongues, and nations into this inhabitation for all eternity. Is it big enough to do that based upon those dimensions? Or are the dimensions and the descriptions a symbolic way of showing... I think Here's what I think about apocalyptic literature. Every time somebody goes out to measure something, I think the measuring of something puts borders and it lets, lets it know this belongs to God. This is His property, you know. Um, I don't think it's meant to say, okay, this is like, if I go out and measure the perimeter of my property, yes, I'm literally getting the measurements of my property, but what's more important, the exact measurements or the fact that I own it? That I own it. It's mine. It's my property. So I think that's kind of what the measuring is, is to show this belongs to God. It's His people. He dwells with them. It's kind of a symbolic way of saying He's protecting them. He's got them. You know, it's, it's this eternal um, inheritance that they have. Now, I could be wrong with that. But the question is, in verse 11, this city, which is the bride of Christ, has the glory of God. Now, we talked about this just a few minutes ago. Where in the Old Testament did the full glory of God reside? In the tabernacle and in the temple. Now in the new creation, where does God's full glory reside? Does it reside in the city or does it reside in the bride? And the answer is yes, because it's the same thing. Where does God's full glory reside in heaven? Among His people. Okay? And so let me just kind of give you some descriptions here. Um, the great and high wall, that could be a picture for eternal security. You got the 12 gates and the 12 foundation stones. You got 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 apostles from the New. You probably know what that represents, right? The completion of God's people from both Old Testament and New Testament is one. Interestingly, what's the dimension of the city as far as this, not the dimensions, but the way it's, the way it's set out? It's a perfect cube. Where's the only other place in the Bible that's a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies. So is it incidental that the church is the cube? What is the church? We are the Holy of Holies. Who could enter the Holy of Holies back in the old days? Only the high priest had access. The church now not only has access to God, but we are the very dwelling place of God. Okay? All right, let's keep, let's keep going here, guys. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, so what's this business of why there's no temple? Why is there no temple in the new heavens and the new earth? Because who's the temple? The temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Who else is the temple? 
We are. So, John, get your metaphors right. Is the temple Jesus? Is the temple God? Or is the temple us? And the answer is yes, okay? The whole issue is, what's this symbolically telling us? God dwells with us permanently. We dwell with Him permanently. We are that temple. I'm going to skip over those passages because you probably know them. You can go back and read in 1 Corinthians 3. talks about us being the temple. Ephesians 2 talks about us being the temple. 1 Peter 2 talks about us being the temple. And then verse 23, what does it say there? There's no need of sun or moon to shine it. Who gives light to the city? And who's the lamp? The lamb. What did Jesus say about himself in John 8? I am the light of the world. Now, that was a metaphorical statement back then, wasn't it? Now, this is sort of a metaphorical statement, but not really. He is the, the glory of God. So think about what happens at night on earth besides sleeping. What type of activity happens at night besides sleeping in the security of your house? Why do we have lights at night? Why do you have lights on your house at night? Why do you have lights in this building at night? Security for people that want to break in and do crazy stuff. Why would there not be any need for any light in heaven? There won't be any darkness at all. There won't be any sin. There won't be any, I mean, everything will be, will be light. And verse 25, metaphorically, there will be an absence of fear. What does verse 25 say? Its gates will never be shut and there will be no night there. Why do we have gates or walls? To keep people out. We're never going to have to fear two things. In heaven, you won't ever have to fear being kicked out because you're there. And you won't ever have to fear evil coming in. It's free, unfettered access to the glory of God. Who are in the city? Well, just another statement there. Verse 27, what do we find out? Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Um, back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, when he's talking to the seven churches, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before my angels. Now, verse 27, who are not in the new heavens and the new earth? Nothing unclean. Now, go back to verse 8, because it's repeated in more detail of who's not there. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be with the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. Okay. Now, you may look at that list and say, now, wait a minute. I've been faithless before. Will I not get to go to heaven? I was sexually immoral as a youth. Am I not going to get to go to heaven? I used to dabble in sorcery. Do I not get to go to heaven? 
I mean, I've, I've told a lie before. Does that mean I'm not going to get to heaven? If you've committed those sins, does that mean you're not going to be there? Does that mean only people that are perfect are going to be in heaven? Okay. Let me give you two verses from Paul that, and I'll give you the grammar here because Paul gives two lists. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. If that were the case, nobody would be in heaven, okay? If this is a list of sins you've committed, because everybody's committed a sin. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Pretty clear, right? What will you not get? You will not get the new heavens and the earth. You will not go to heaven. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I need you to turn to your Bible because I forgot to put the other verse in there, which is very, very important. That doesn't give you much hope, does it? <laughs> verse 11. You guys ready? So, so he gives a list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. You look at that list and say, what if, what if I've done those things? Does that mean I'm never going to go to heaven? Okay, look at verse 11 in your Bibles. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What Paul is talking about here are those who live in unrepentant sin and never believe in Christ and die practicing those things as a lifestyle and haven't been saved. So if you've committed those sins and you've repented and you've been saved by grace, you will be in heaven. If you've committed those sins and you've not repented of them and haven't trusted Christ for salvation, okay, so what sends you to hell? Sin. Is there any particular sins that send you to hell more than others? All sin sends you to hell. What's the only way you can escape that? by having your sins forgiven through repentance and faith in Christ. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and I love Paul, and things like these, in case my list wasn't long enough. Um, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, important word, do. Those who do such things. The word do is in what we call a present active in the Greek language. A present active in the Greek language means ongoing action. In other words, it's a lifestyle. You could translate it, those who keep on continually doing these things as a lifestyle. If you're saved, do you do that as a lifestyle? Do you sin from time to time? But is it the totality of who you are? No, you've been changed. You've been forgiven. You have the Holy Spirit living inside you. Okay, so let's go into chapter 22. Okay, so I want to tell you the story of the Bible. Okay, here's the story of the Bible.
all stories have a beginning, right? And all stories have a middle, right? And all stories have an ending, right? Well, the Bible doesn't. <laughs> beginning, middle, beginning. <laughs> okay. Okay. How does the Bible begin? Where does the Bible begin? Creation. And where did God put His people? What did you have in the Garden of Eden? Tree of Life. Okay, what happened with that whole scenario when we sinned? The rest of the rest of the history of the world is this is where we are now. Christ has come; He saved us. Then, in the new heavens and the new earth, it is new. It's but it's going to go back to some of the images of the Garden of Eden but even greater than the Garden of Eden. What was the one thing in the Garden of Eden that's different about heaven? As great as the Garden of Eden was, what, what's the one huge difference between the Garden of Eden and heaven? Could. Okay, Adam was created upright, but he still could what? Sin. Did Adam sin in a perfect environment? Yes. Okay, in, in the Garden of Eden, even though Adam was created upright, he still had the ability to fall into sin, and he did. In the new heavens and new earth, are we going to have that ability? So it's going to be greater than the Garden of Eden because we won't, we won't have the, even the capacity to sin because we'll be sin. And Satan won't be there. There'll be no temptation. There'll be no capacity. We will be totally, it'll be greater than the Garden of Eden because we will be perfected with no possibility of sinning at all, the way Adam had a possibility of it. Okay? But there's images of the Garden of Eden here in this, this, this as you go into chapter 22. So we're just going to look at the first five verses of chapter 22 because it's all tied together in the original language, in the original text. So into chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, river of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. At night, and night will be no more. They will not need the light of lamp of sun, for the love of God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What did Adam and Eve not have access to in the garden? Tree of life. They were barred the tree of life, remember? Well, the tree of knowledge of good and evil they couldn't eat from, but once they forfeited that, they also were forfeited the tree of life. Genesis 3, 23 through 23, 23 through 23. Genesis 3, 22 through 23. The Lord God said, Behold, this man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. What, what were they forfeited from taking from? The tree of life. What is here in the middle of 
the new heavens and the new earth. The tree of life. Okay? And it's for the healing of the nations. Now, okay, if you're thinking literally, what did you just read? No more tears, no more pain. Then why do I need to be healed? Is it like, okay, I'm walking down the streets of gold, I trip and fall, I break my leg, I go over the tree of life, I get a little thing, and I eat it, and then I'm automatically healed? Or are we talking metaphorical, symbolic language here? Okay, what, 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 what he's saying here, it's an apocalyptic or metaphorical or symbolic way of saying that there will be the complete absence of physical or spiritual needs. This will be our glorified state of perfection. We will have no needs or lack anything. Now look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything, what does your Bible say? Accursed. Where do you hear the word cursed in the first few chapters of the Bible? What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Genesis 3, 17-19. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The curse is ultimately reversed of what Adam and Eve did in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, my most favorite part of this entire passage is verse 4. What does your Bible say in verse 4? They will see His face. That's the ultimate blessing, don't you think? Seeing Christ face to face. What did Moses want to see? Exodus 33, 18. Moses gives this bold request to God. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I shall show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. What happens if you see the Lord face to face? You do not live. But God is gracious to Moses. He said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my backside, but my face shall not be seen. Right now, can anybody see Jesus' face and live? So what do you do with these people that say, I was shaving in my room and Jesus appeared to me and told me he's coming back and he suctioned me up to heaven and I, I went to heaven and he told me all these things and I came back. And What do you do with people that say they've seen Jesus? You run away as fast as you can. No. What's the desire today? We want to see. Now, through the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we can commune with God. We walk by faith, not by sight. So we commune with Jesus in its sweet fellowship, and we pray to Him, and we sing to Him, and we receive from Him. But, but it's all spiritual right now through the Holy Spirit. But in heaven, we will see Him face to face. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Okay, what happens when you wake up in the morning and you take a shower and you get out and what? You have to get your towel out and makes that weird noise. You have to scrape the, the stuff away. So like, can you really see yourself in a mirror dimly? You have to scrape it. So Paul's saying right now, our vision is like, we, can, we, we got glimpses in the scriptures of what Jesus looks like. We got glimpses of what heaven looks like. But on that day, that, that mirror will be like totally cleaned off and we'll be in his presence and be able to see him as he is. And then John says it in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay, it's not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, two things. We shall be like Him. What is that? The resurrection. Because we shall see Him as He is. Can we see Jesus as He is right now? It's kind of like that movie, If You Good Men, You Can't Handle the Truth. If he were to show up to you right now, you couldn't handle it because you don't have a glorified body. When you have a glorified body and you're in heaven, you will have the capacity to be able to not only see Jesus, but interact with Jesus, be with Jesus forever and ever, face to face. Just like when Adam and Eve talked with God in the garden in the cool of day. So, this images of the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there was the curse, there was alienation, there was separation, there was shame, there was fear. But now it's come full circle to intimate fellowship with God. Then we've got, what else is in verse 4? We've got this whole forehead stuff again. Our name's going to be on his forehead, or his name will be on our foreheads. What have we been saying over and over again about what it means to be on the forehead? It was a seal of ownership, represented ownership. Because Christ has purchased us, um, with His blood, He owns us. We have peace of knowing that we're firmly gripped in His right hand. He will never let us go. Oh, no, you never let go through the calm and through that Oh, no, you never, you never let go of me. That's, that's what it means right there. Um, we're His treasured possession. Two passages of Scripture that are parallel. Exodus 19, 4-6. You, this is God speaking to Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. You're my people, my treasured possession. First Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then what does verse 5 say? Again, there's that night will be no more. They will, know, they will be no need to light to, to have the lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And what are we going to do? We will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. King of kings and Lord. You're supposed to stand up, guys. The hallelujah, of course. No. no, so we will reign forever and ever. So as we end tonight... The earth was originally created for humans to inhabit and to have intimate, unhindered fellowship with the Creator. And in the new heavens and new earth, we will experience just that. Now think about that for a moment. What's the word intimate mean? The closest you can get. What does the word unhindered mean? Nothing stopping you. Fellowship with Jesus. So,
next week we will finish the book of Revelation. Do you guys have any questions in the, in the nine minutes we have left tonight? A little bit more exciting tonight, isn't it, than the kind of depressing stuff we've been looking at. Well, your, hopefully you'll find that. I don't, I don't know exactly where that, that passage is in Psalm. So, let me just ask you this. Yeah, I found it. Okay, what is it? Uh, verse, uh, Psalm 78, verse 46. Psalm 78, 46, okay. Yeah. Go ahead and read it. Se, uh, Proverbs 78, verse 69. Okay. okay. And, he built, and he built the sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has established forever. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, when you get to something like this, what's the so what? What do you leave with tonight? What are you guys leaving with tonight besides just having some cool information about heaven? What's your application? What's your what's your worship? What's your response to this? You said the peace of knowing that. Yeah. yeah. That's a good word, just because. Peace, the joy of eternity. Yeah, the joy, the joy, the peace. He gives you joy and peace. Was somebody going to say something over here, Nancy? Were you going to say something, Risa? How else does it make you respond? Make sure you repent. Okay. <laughs> the bottom line is make sure you're not one who's in, who who is not in, in the lake of fire. I guess. So, yeah, joy and peace. Yeah, yeah, Dennis. A symbolic way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it talks about Satan being uh, unleashed when he during he's unleashed now, right? Well, he's bound from deceiving the nations to to assemble against God prematurely. That that's the yeah, and that's what I don't know, I don't know if you were here last week, but I kind of went into that whole yeah explanation of, of the difference the different views of how Satan was bound. Yeah, that, that's just the symbolic way of looking at it is that he's not that he can't do anything or that he can't attack or he can't tempt. It's very specific that passage. He's bound from deceiving the nations, which would mean they would march together and have this huge coalition against God prematurely before his time. He's trying to you know deceive and it's kind of like he's trying to do stuff before God's appointed time. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, next week, hopefully we'll finish Revelation and next week I'll announce what we're going to do after Revelation. Okay. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and, and Lord, we do thank you for heaven, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And we may not understand all the intricate details, but Lord, it doesn't matter. It's going to be amazing when we get there. And, and Jesus, I just can't wait to see you face to face to be in your presence, to have unfettered access to you forever and ever, uh, to be with the body of Christ, to be experiencing the full glory of God uh, forever and ever, Lord. That's just, and like we said tonight, it gives us great peace. It gives us great comfort. It gives us great joy uh, to know that we are yours, that you've sealed us, and that uh, we can never be taken out of your hand. 
that we're eternally secured. So, Lord, we wait for our inheritance um, on that final day, and we wait with joy and hope and anticipation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.